Okay. If you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. This morning we're going to be in verses 15 through 21. And you'll remember up to this point, we've looked at some of the historicity, uh, some of those consistent themes that we see throughout Daniel. In our introduction, we looked at why Judah is in captivity. Uh, we've looked at, as we've come through here, the, the, we've kind of hit upon the sovereignty of God in what's happening. We've looked at Daniel and his, and. Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's purposing to stand in faith, and it's more than just the meat. It's not the food that they're given. It's trying to establish themselves in a heart that's, that trusts the Lord above everything else. And we looked at the, the appeal that they made. We looked at those things up to this point. Now, this morning, the... <clears throat> The uh, key theme uh, that I want to put us in remembrance of, that we kind of looked at briefly when we introduced the book, is God's deliverance of the faithful. Uh, and if you'll turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 24, a few pages to the left in your Bible from Daniel 1, Jeremiah 24. And let's read verses 5 through 7. Now, in many respects, there, this is a prophecy by De Jeremiah, who was the prophet to Judah. And there's going to be this coming uh, captivity. That's part of what's being talked about. But in verses 5 through 7, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place unto the land of the Chaldeans for their good. So God is sovereign. He's exercising sovereignty. He realizes there are good figs, and there's an illustration that's being given here. There's a basket full of figs, good ones and naughty ones, it says. Verse 6, for I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Verse 7, I will give them an heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. So there's this looking forward to deliverance. There's even some iteration here or some implication for the deliverance and the faithfulness of God in the midst of their captivity. And we're going to talk about that this morning. This is a promise specific to Judah. And by way of application, we realize that there is some similar promise made to us. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, we have a very similar promise made to the church, which would be you and me, believers in Jesus Christ, correct? And so we want to look at that because we have that same promise, that same assurance that God is for us and not against us, that he is going to deliver the faithful. And as we've talked about and looked at the example of Daniel standing uh, in faith, deciding consciously to operate in trust of God as opposed to uh, yielding to the temptations or the, the desires or the hardships that we may experience in the world, we find that God is faithful to us. 
that he watches over, that he protects. Second Peter chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. We shouldn't be surprised that there are those falsely teaching in the name of Christ. And many shall follow their pernicious, or their, that word pernicious means destructive. Many shall follow their destructive ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. The gospel is slandered as a result. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. That's how much they think of us. Judgment now of a long time lingers not and their damnation slumbers not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world, world of the ungodly, verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that, should, that after should live ungodly. So here are three references. These angels that God reserves for judgment because of their uh, forsaking of him. Uh, we have, we talked about this a little bit last week, the world in Genesis chapter 6. The imaginations of the hearts of men was always evil continually, and them being judged, Sodom and Gomorrah being judged. And we'll remember the story of Lot. And, and his, he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. And if there's 10 righteous in the city, Lord, would you spare it? And there wasn't 10 righteous found. Okay. God didn't reserve judgment. He executed judgment. Verse 7, he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the world. He was vexed with it. He was perplexed. He was distraught because of the sin that he sees around him. And for many of us as believers, this is sort of where we exist. Hopefully we're these righteous who are seeing the sinfulness around us and it vexes us. It puts us in remembrance of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And hopefully with some expectation of things that are yet to come, it creates some urgency for us to be those ambassadors that God has told us to be now. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Verse 9, and this is really where we want to focus this morning. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, word temptations as you look at it in, in the original, it means uh, it can mean temptation, but it means trial or calamity. So here, out of the hardship, out of those things that we may experience, God knows how to deliver those righteous, the godly, out of those calamities and to reserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. God is delivering the faithful. Turn with me one more reference here, and, and then we're going to get to Daniel and, and the application of this truth. Psalm 34, Psalm 34, verses 15 through 19. And while we read these verses, as you get there, while we read these, look at the tenor, right? That's the underlying theme, so to speak, 
that runs throughout. And it isn't just deliverance here immediately. It's the ultimate deliverance, which is only offered in Jesus Christ. But we have that, that underlying theme in all of these promises. We even talked about it in Sunday school this morning, right? That even in the proto-evangelium, in that Genesis 3.15, that first utterance of the gospel, we have this looking forward to Jesus Christ being the judge of things future, future today. Psalm 34, verses 15 through 19. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saves such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. There's a statement of fact. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord delivers him out of them all. In this life or in the next life, one way or the other, this theme of ultimate deliverance. God delivers the faithful. And as we take this and we began to look at it, as we begin to look at it in light of Daniel and his interactions, where he's at, right? Remember last week, he goes to... Uh, the, the prince of the eunuchs, and he gets turned down. And he makes a second appeal to, uh, what was his name, Melzar, Melzar, verse 11, who had direct oversight over Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. His direct oversight over those four Hebrews, and they make appeal to him. And they get this 10-day trial. They get this 10-day trial. Let's read verse 15 in Daniel chapter 1. And at the end of 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Now you can imagine that if you're eating the king's meat, you're getting the best that the country has to offer. You're not getting seconds. You're not getting the cast-offs. You're getting the best. And they specifically asked for pulse, which is vegetables and water. It's all they wanted is vegetables and water. And as we talked about, they're looking to establish their hearts firmly and completely in trust to God. Not looking at, and we see Nebuchadnezzar and we see Babylon and their, their efforts to assimilate them into their culture and into their society. We're going to change their name and remove any vestige of reminder of God's faithfulness. We're going to make them dependent upon us for everything that they desire. And Daniel purposes in his heart to say, no, we're going to trust in the Lord and in him only. Therefore, give us vegetables and water that we might not defile ourselves in creating these idols and yielding ourselves and putting our dependency upon something other than God. And as they make this appeal and as they're granted that 10-day trial, God miraculously intervened in their countenance, their appearance, and everything about them. God intervened. Now, I'm not going to make any case or anything like that. I mean, it's not necessarily a, it's not a case for vegan, veganism or vegetarianism. This doesn't stand as that. This is something that God did. The 10 days, their countenances were the way they were because of what God did, not because of what they ate. And we have to remember that. Daniel understood where their dependence should lie. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus here speaking. And he's quoting in... uh, Yeah, he here, here is quoting. I don't have the reference in front of me. I apologize for that. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So here he is. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And as Satan takes the bread and the stone, he says, Hey, you could turn this in to bread you could eat you could satisfy the needs of your flesh jesus said it's written god has said in his word man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god and daniel understands where his dependence should lie it's not in nebuchadnezzar and his ability to provide for him it's in the lord and in his ability to provide for him everything that is necessary now jump back to deuteronomy chapter 8 Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember that Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. It's God speaking to this generation of people who their parents have all passed away because of their unbelief and they weren't able to enter to the promised land. And now, as a result of that passing away, they get to go in. It's time. And before they go in, they take the time to refresh themselves. And that's what Deuteronomy is about what God has commanded them how we do things, what we do, and why we do them. And God is here with that redemptive purpose, that redemptive story throughout Scripture, giving us some illustrations. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, says, All the commandments which I commanded thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. So God's promises, this is the promised land that they're entering, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the, the progenitors of Israel. And he says, you're going to have to walk in obedience, and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee 40 years in the wilderness, to humble thee, to bring them to a place of dependence upon him. That was the purpose of their 40 years of wandering. And to prove thee. And to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. Remember that early on in their wanderings, in Exodus chapter 19, God says, listen, I'm going to make a covenant with this nation, with Israel. And as part of that, I'm going to give you some things to do, some stipulations, if you will, on on this covenant. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they break the Ten Commandments, the chief of the Ten Commandments, worshiping idols before Moses has even returned from on top of the mountain. And so he's putting them in remembrance. We've agreed to walk together. Now, God has never turned his back on Israel and and never will. He, He is faithful even when we are faithless. Verse 3, and he says, And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna. He's provided for their needs, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. 
Daniel realizes that I'm not living by the meat that is provided. I'm living by the things that God has given. He knows where his dependence should be. Thy raiment, thy clothing wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. Can you imagine how great that would be if your feet just never hurt? It'd be perfect. Your feet didn't swell. They wandered around for 40 years and they had great feet. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. He's telling them right now, listen, when you make mistakes, when you falter, when you don't live up to your end of the bargain, so to speak, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to bring you back with the intent that you will have learned a lesson from it, with the intent that your heart would be humbled toward me. Just as you wandered in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you, I will correct you to humble you. Verse 6, therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Our dependence isn't on the things that are around us. It's not on what the world can provide on our behalf. There was nothing in the world that provided for their needs. They needed food and God provided manna miraculously, something they'd never seen before. When they complained about that, when they were ungrateful about that, God even provided quail on their behalf, some meat to eat. And when they needed water, God miraculously provided water. He provided their needs over and over. Man doesn't live by bread alone, what he can taste, touch, feel, and experience. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And as we have that connection made here, there's this connection made with obedience. Now, for you and I as believers, this isn't obedience to merit favor with God, to somehow be acceptable in his sight. But this is a reciprocation. Just as Daniel is reciprocating the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of this corrective time in Judah's history, we reciprocate the love that we received. That while Christ was, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that being the, the show, the, the manifestation of God's love towards us. We reciprocate that through obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because we understand where our dependence should lie. There are blessings associated with obedience. There were blessings for the nation of Israel. There are blessings for you and I associated with our obedience. We don't obey in many respects to obtain the blessing. But whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap destruction. But if we sow to the spirit, we're going to reap life everlasting. There are benefits to you and I as we walk in obedience. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God makes this plain to the nation of Israel. This young, young, these people who are about to enter into the promised land, he tells them, but there are benefits. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14. I may not read the whole thing, but he says, It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. First of all, he's going to elevate you to a position above all the nations on the earth. There, there is something in that. He continues, and he gives over and over blessings, these things that are linked to their obedience. And all these blessings shall come on thee over 
overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in. Blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies to rise up against thee, to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto, and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. The Lord shall establish thee as a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep himself, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. Over and over, God says, listen, in verse 13, the Lord shall open, excuse me, verse 12, the Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season and to bless all the work of thine hand. There is blessing associated with obedience. There is blessing associated with obedience, and it's miraculous. It is the miracle of reward, as I've titled this slide, right? It's something that God is doing outside of what is natural as a result of our obedience to him. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, should be able to, I can almost quote it. It was a memory verse, like what, just a few weeks ago, but I can't quite get there. I apologize, guys. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. And why are we meditating in it? That thou may observe to do everything that is written therein. Right? Then, he says, thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. We've taken what God has said and we've put it into practice. We've meditated upon it. We've studied it. That word meditation isn't just something where I just read it. That's the first step. But it's like eating, right? The first step is just putting the food in your mouth. Digestion starts by chewing and then it gets swallowed. And everything that happens as a result of that, reading it is just the first step. It's just getting it in, into us. We have to meditate. We have to study. An approved workman is not ashamed. He's rightly dividing the word. Why? Because he knows it. He's studied it. Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 23. These all contain for us, and they're memory verses, they're memory passages, those things linked to our obedience, the blessing, the miracle of reward, because it makes no sense, right, that here I would study God's word and put it into practice from a worldly perspective. And I would reap the positive benefits. To you and I as believers, it should be a no-brainer. Of course, I would expect God's faithfulness as I'm faithful to him. Of course, even I would expect God's faithfulness when I am not faithful to him. By way of correction, just as he told the nation before they entered in, I'll chasten you if I need to as a father. There is this miracle of reward. Daniel understood where his dependence needed to lie. And so they make this they purpose in their heart to not defile themselves. They make the request. And it's finally rewarded. 
And as we see that, this miracle of what happens here, that 10 days, at the end of that 10 days, their countenance is God was faithful to the purposing of their heart, to their faithfulness. We're going to walk in obedience. We're not going to trust anything above and beyond our trust in the Lord. And as they do that, God is faithful in their countenance. They're, they're, they're fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children that did eat the portion of the king's meat on vegetables and water versus all of the best that the empire of Babylon had to offer. The inference is the correction of those who de- whose dependence lies elsewhere. And it was right when we read that early on there in Deuteronomy, we read that God said, I will chasten you. But if God is going to be faithful and miraculously intervene on, and bless on behalf of those who are faithful, who are, who are walking in obedience, then on the other side of that, we would expect correction. We would expect some interaction on the other side too. And if we go back to Jeremiah chapter 24, that's the, the two figs that are there, the, those two, the good figs and the, the naughty figs, as it phrases it in the King James, there's that contrast being made there. And, and, and we read earlier, right? God doesn't forget the good figs. He knows you're there. He knows that you've been taken into Babylon, that you're there as the slaves of Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm watchful for you. I'm taking care of you, and I'm rewarding you. I'm blessing you as you walk in obedience. In addition to that, there is consequence. Jeremiah 24, verse 2, one basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. And if we jump down to verse 7, and I will give them in heart to know me that I, am, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be to their, be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Verse 8, and as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely, thus saith the Lord, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in the land and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. He's specifically saying Zedekiah and all these, and we looked at this, who they were just a little bit. These are the evil ones. These are the bad fruits. There are those that are there, and I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb and a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave them unto their fathers. They're going to be removed from the land. They don't, get to, they don't get to abide there any longer. God is correcting. God is using this to bring about repentance in his people. Now, we take this, I mean, this applies today as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In many respects, this chapter is talking about the... Uh, meat sacrificed to idols and those kinds of things. But in verses 21 through 22, it says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the devil's table. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, you got, you got to get off the fence. You can't be over here a little bit and over here a little bit. We have to be holy in one camp or the other. And God's going to come along, as it were, and he's going to push us off the fence. 
He's going to correct us. He's going to pull us back. And he's going to say, listen, you're, to- you're towing the line and he's going to pull us back. He's going to correct us and chasten us so that we might be those who are walking, drinking of the cup, of, of his cup. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We typically think of jealousy in this bad sense, but here it is. The Lord is exercising this jealousy. He is zealous for you and I, so much so that he's willing to remove us from wherever we're at to displace us so that we might be corrected and brought back to him. God is faithful to his own, period. To you and I, those who are his. In Lamentations chapter 3, right after the book of Jeremiah. It's written by Jeremiah. It's his lament. It's his mourning, if you will, for for Jerusalem. It's going to fall, that it's going to be subject to the, the siege and the destruction of Babylon. But in the midst of this, we have this, uh, this faithful word. As he's lamenting the, the bitterness, the wormwood in the gall, as he says, he says, my soul has them in remembrance and is humbled in me. I remember the afflictions. I remember the hardships. Those are the things that he remembers. And it humbles me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, have I hope. Verse 22, Lamentations 3. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. God is faithful to his people, to his own period. Even in the midst of this. Now, the faithfulness of God's deliverance because here is Daniel and he's he's in this country he's in this country he's a he's a slave there but we see God's faithfulness the faithfulness of deliverance and I, there's really two methods in which God would deliver us and and we see this throughout scripture these two methods employed one the removal from or the removal of the hardship Whatever calamity may be coming our way, God would remove us from it, or he would remove the calamity itself. Okay, let's go to Exodus chapter 14 for just a moment. Let's look at this example. Got a couple of examples for us. Exodus 14. Here is God, and as the nation of Israel has left Egypt, And they're being led at this point by the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire by night. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before before Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea over against Baal Zephon, which before it shall you encamp by the sea. Now, if you look this up, if you look up Pihahiroth, and, and you see that it's this little peninsula, and the only way to access it as you get up to the beach there at the Red Sea is through this canyon. There, there's no way of retreat. 
So basically what we have is God instructing his people to go to a completely indefensible position. Go somewhere where you cannot trust in anything but me. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, and the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. The nation of Israel follows God exactly where he told them to go. And that's exactly what happens. We know that uh, the Pharaoh ha- hears the report of where they've gone. He says, aha, they're stuck. Let's go get them. They're trapped against the Red Sea. There's no retreat. Verse 11 As they see Pharaoh drawing close, here's his chariots and his armies. The nation of Israel looks up. I mean, they're not soldiers like these guys. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us up to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Woe is us. We're going to die. Let's take it out on Moses. Here is God who has miraculously spared them over and over and over through these ten plagues in the nation of Egypt, showing how he is superior to each of the false gods of the nation of Egypt. And then miraculously delivers them, giving them the Passover and this significant foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ. And when they get in the midst of a little bit of hardship, something that God himself directed them to, they begin to doubt. Woe is me. We should have just stayed in Egypt. We could have just died there. It would have been better to have died there than to die here. And Moses' response is pretty good in verse 13. Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. There is a deliverance coming, is what he says. Be still. In other words, shut your mouth and watch what God is going to do. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord shall fight for you. You shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Moses, don't intercede for me. I already told you what to do. Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. But lift thou up the rod and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. The first method that God will use to deliver us is to remove us from the hardship or remove the hardship from us. And in this instance, he really does both. He says, I'm going to remove you from the hardship, the hardship being the nation of Egypt and all of their chariots and Pharaoh himself bearing down upon them with the intent to wipe them out. And he says, I'm going to deliver you from this. Moses, go put your rod in the water. Boom. And what do we read? Verse 21. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and the made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on the right hand and on their left. 
So imagine it. Moses plunges in his staff and the water spreads. There's this east wind and it's a wall on either side. And all night long, God sustains this so that they might cross through. And it isn't some hard crossing where it's mucky and miry. It's dry land. God miraculously delivers them by removing them from the hardship. He gave them a way of escape where there seemingly was no way of escape. And secondly, he removes the hardship from them. Because as the nation of, as Pharaoh and his armies, the nation of Egypt pursue them into the midst of the dry land, God removes his hand from the water and they're consumed in the Red Sea. We see this in the book of Acts as well, over and over. In fact, we see miraculous deliverances. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 30. We have old Paul and Silas. And they're in prison. That's where they're at. They're, they're stuck in prison. Their hands are bound. And they sang, it was midnight, and they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly, it says, verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loose. So here they are. You imagine the scene. We're in prison. We're bound and there's this earthquake, and immediately, not only do the doors fly open, but everyone's fetters, their handcuffs, they all fall off. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had all fled, they've all escaped, and I'm as good as dead. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm. We are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? God miraculously delivers Paul and Silas out of the hardship that they find themselves in. And in the midst of all that, does it in such a way that this jailer comes to faith in Jesus Christ? That God receives all the glory. Turn with me back a few pages to Acts chapter 12. Yet another of God's apostles, his disciples in prison. Acts chapter 12. This time it's Peter put in prison by Herod beginning in verse 6 of Acts 12. And then Herod, and when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers before the door kept the prison. So here it is, he's in prison, but not only that, he's bound between these two soldiers. They're sleeping side by side. He's tied to them and there's guards at the door. There's no escape. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon, came upon him and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side. I think it's funny he has to smite him. And Peter was a heavy sleeper, apparently. Had to wake him up. But he smacks him. Like, Listen, Peter, get up. You know, Give him a little kick, maybe. Come on. And he smote him on the side. And he raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Those chains that are attached to these two soldiers 
just fall off. And the angel said unto him, gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. He said, get dressed and put your shoes on, buddy. And he did. And he says unto him, cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. Peter thinks he's dreaming. And, they were pa- and when they were past the first and the second ward, or the first and the second gates, the, those watches that were guarded, then came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod for all the expectation of the people of the Jews. God delivers Peter from an impossibly, he couldn't have escaped himself. There was no way around it. And why does he do it? In each of these instances, why does God do it? For God's glory and the furtherance of his will. He loves Peter. He loves Paul and Silas. He loves the nation of Israel. But God delivers them for his glory and the furtherance of his will. Keep that in mind. The first method that God will deliver us, that he will show his faithfulness in deliverance, is to remove us or to remove the hardship. One way or the other. And we've looked at these miraculous events, and it may be seemingly less miraculous, if I can say it that way, but we have to not miss the fact that God is in the midst of that deliverance. Right? We have those that we are near and dear with who were in many respects miraculously delivered not too long ago, just over a year ago, from a country that was hostile. They, they may have been stranded there, yet God was faithful in bringing them out. And and seemingly without the perspective and the faith that we hold, it looks different. We may misinterpret that, but God was in fact faithful. God delivered them. He removed them from the hardship for his glory and for the furtherance of his will. Now, the second method in which God might deliver us is grace in the midst of the hardship. And this one's harder to, it's not harder to identify. It may be in the moment harder to identify. Why? Because we want to be like Peter or Paul and Silas, delivered miraculously. God has clearly moved on our behalf and he's done this thing and removed us from this hardship. It's easy to identify. It's easy to point and say, look at what God has done. But grace in the midst of the hardship is nonetheless deliverance from it. And why would he do it? For God's glory and for the furtherance of his will. The same reason. That means that if God delivers us miraculously, that was what brought him the most glory. That was what accomplished his will. It also means that if God gives us grace and doesn't remove the hardship from us or remove us from that hardship, that that is for his glory and the furtherance of his will. And I would suggest that in the midst of that, that part of the will that he has intended is for us. Turns me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. 
So look at verses 7 through 10. This is Paul speaking. The same man who was just previously in the book of Acts delivered miraculously with Silas from the prison. And this is what he writes, beginning in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was a given to me a thorn in the flesh. In other words, a hardship, something that was against him, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. This was something that was given to Paul, something that was permitted in his life. Think, think of Job in the similar circumstance here, something that is permitted in his life. Why? For God's glory and the furtherance of his will. That Paul might remain humble and a vessel and a servant useful unto the Lord. That he wouldn't get proud and puffed up because of the abundance of the visions that he had. He continues, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Paul prays three times that this would, this thorn in the flesh would be removed from him. He's praying for deliverance. And God's response is this, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, most gladly therefore this is Paul's response to that grace. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When Paul specifically prayed to the Lord to remove this hardship, to deliver him from whatever this thorn in the flesh was, and we don't know exactly what it was. God says, the answer, the deliverance that I'm going to give you is my grace. My grace is sufficient for you. And he rejoices in that. Paul realized what had happened. Paul realized the deliverance that he'd been given. Wasn't what he prayed for exactly he acknowledged the hand of God in the middle of it. And he says, therefore, I take pleasure in the hardships that I experience. As we look at Daniel and as we look at his story, we see a little bit of both. Here, Daniel doesn't want to defile himself. We see that removed. We see that appeal granted. Nonetheless, Daniel still remains a captor in the middle of Babylon. He's in territory. He's been taken. He's left in Babylon, but he's been given grace and he's been given favor. So that in the middle of this enemy territory, he stands out. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. This is examples of the grace that he's been given. Now, at the end of the days that the king had said unto him, should bring them in. That's this three years, and we know that from verse 5. And the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king communed with them. And among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Right? We, Nebuchadnezzar gives this command, bring of the best that there is of the youths in Israel and Judah, 
bring them and we're going to get them fattened up. We're going to train them so that they might be those who would stand in my court and minister to me. And who is chosen? Who stands before the king? Who received the grace, the deliverance of God in receipt of grace and favor before Nebuchadnezzar? Those who were faithful. Those who had purpose to walk in obedience. We find the faithfulness of God in deliverance. And it's going to be one of those two methods, a removal of the hardship or removal from the hardship or grace in the middle of it. That's consistent throughout Scripture. Now, let's look at some of the specific means of grace, because sometimes I feel as if I miss, and maybe you do too, I miss the grace that God has given me. I overlook it. I miss those things. And I want to be like Paul, who acknowledges what's going on, who recognizes it. So verse 17 in Daniel chapter 1 says, As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in learning. And that word learning means literature. That's what it means. So, so here they are in literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God given knowledge. God gives them knowledge. And we, we, in this case, that is a grace. That is something that God specifically gave them. They might stand out before Nebuchadnezzar. They might stand in his presence. So what knowledge, what is the source? Well, in Proverbs chapter 2, and we, we know that in many respects, they must be familiar with it. We know that they must have some familiarity and some personal conviction because they purpose to not defile themselves before the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He lays up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. So the source of wisdom, the source of knowledge, the source of deliverance, the means of grace in the midst of this is clearly God himself. And in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, the same promise in some respect to you and I should be familiar. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. And here's a key thing. Here's something that we sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, that I separate these two verses. It says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And it put me, as I read this, and it puts me in remembrance of Daniel. I purposed, he chose, he did everything in his power to remain firm, to trust in the Lord and in him completely. And what did God do? He extended to him knowledge and wisdom. He gave him special ability, so to speak, to interpret dreams and visions. These things that would put him in favor and set a path to accomplish the purpose and the will of God for his glory. More than once, we see Nebuchadnezzar proclaim that everybody's going to worship the God of the Hebrews, these four guys, for God's glory and for the furtherance of his will. 
And not only that, it says that he gave them, in addition to knowledge, he gave them skill. And that word skill, it means to be circumspect or prudent. They, they were able to exercise discretion. Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael were men who knew what needed to be done and when it needed to be done and how to do it. That's what it means. That's what skill is. Turn with me to Job chapter 32. Job 32. I have to find Job. Come on. There it is. Okay, Job 32. Right before Psalms, Proverbs. Okay, Job 32. Now, in Job, right, we have this man who God has allowed to be afflicted by Satan. We get that all the way from back from the first chapter. And he's afflicted heavily. He's lost everything. His children have died. He's lost his fortune. His wife is distraught. Job just cursed God and died. His three friends show up to give him, quote, unquote, comfort. And they spend a lot of time saying a lot of things. And I'm, uh, in some respects, they get some things right. In other respects, they get some things wrong. There's some truth to be derived there. And here we have one of his young friends, and he's, he's interacting with them. And he says, beginning in verse 6 of Job 32, And Elihu, the son of Barak, Barakel, the Buzite, apologize, answered and said, I am young, and you are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid and durst not show you my opinion. Okay, so he, he realizes that he's young and inexperienced, and he's looking at these older men, and their counsel and their interaction with Job, and he's, he's there with some expectancy to learn something. He says, I held my peace because I'm young. And I said, days should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. And he continues on, and he, he, he interjects himself into this conversation. Here he is as a young man, but he says this, right? There is a spirit of man, and the inspiration of the Almighty is what gives understanding. When we look at Daniel and we look at his three friends, what we see is the inspiration of the Almighty, the understanding, the skill, the circumspectness, the prudence that they've been given is something specifically derived from God himself. And the thing that we need to realize is that the same wisdom is given to us as we ask of it from God. The same circumspectness, knowing how we should walk, the, the exercise of discretion is imparted to us as believers. As the Spirit leads us in truth, as He reproves us of truth and righteousness and of judgment. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. 
in Psalm 1, we read similar, right? That the man who, who, who meditates upon the law of the Lord is going to be like the tree of water, tree planted by the rivers of water. That there's going to be growth, that there's going to be understanding. In the same sense, we read that here in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Though thou, thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Not his enemies, his commandments. He takes the word of God and it is what indwells him. It's the abundance of his heart that is always there and it makes him wiser than his enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. We have the word of God in its totality. It is a revelation of God that he's given you and I. And here it is declared for you and I by God himself to be that thing which makes us wise, which gives us understanding. In Acts chapter 6, verse 10, and I'll just turn there and read it for you. Acts chapter 6, verse 10. <clears throat> Here's Stephen, and he's full of, it says he's full of faith and power, and he did great wonders and miracles among the people. <laughs> and and. and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Being full of faith and power, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. It distinguished him. And if we look carefully, right, it says, verse 9, certain of the synagogue, which called the synagogues of the Libertines, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. The Alexandrians, right, the great library, lost library of Alexandria, where there's this repository of wisdom and knowledge and all these things, and it's lost, but here they are from Alexandria. They were understood scholars, those of Asia. And, and so what we have here is this description of the wisest, the most elite, and they can't refute anything that Stephen says. Why? Because he's not speaking from his own understanding. He's speaking with this understanding based upon the precepts and the word of God that he has received by faith. And that's what has set him apart. Same thing is there for you and I. The means of grace given to Daniel and his cohorts is knowledge and skill. Knowledge and skill. And the source in both instances is God and his word by the instruction of the spirit. We also find that God established them. So we get through into Dan, further into Daniel chapter uh, 1 here, verse 20. It says, And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians. The word magicians, it means the diviners. The, 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 uh, 
there's some dabbling in the occult here. That's that's what it means there by magicians and the astrologers. Those are the conjurers, the astrologers. Um, you know, they're taking the stars and those kinds of things. We, in many respects, we interpret those couple of words uh, much more spiritually than they were understood in Daniel's day. These are the scientists and the scholars. That's who they are. Now, when we, this is going to be a terrible example, but I'm going to use it, right? Did, here you have the Asgardians. And it looks like magic, but he's like, this is just science you don't understand. That's what they call magic. And so in some respects, they have, because of their understanding of things, they're called magicians. It's, it's similar. Like I said, it's a terrible example, but, but it, that's what it means. Okay? These aren't necessarily magicians that are going around with magic tricks. They may, like the magicians there in Pharaoh's court, they, they may uh, do things that are exercising that knowledge to the extent that it helps them stand before Nebuchadnezzar. But it doesn't, none of that matters. All of the magicians, all of the astrologers, the, 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 the scientists and the scholars, if you will, that are there in the realm and throughout all of Babylon, Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael are found to be 10 times better than all of them, 10 times better, exponentially better. And here's the thing, when God establishes a thing or a person, it is to his glory and it's without equivocation. And equivocation means that there's no wiggle room. We can't chalk it up to anything else. It is clearly established by God and only by him. And as we look at what happens here, as we read through, as we progress, uh, even in the ne maybe next week, in Daniel chapter 2, as we look at the first dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar, he gives glory to God. He says, listen, I'm not that smart, I'm not that talented, but this is what God has given me. This is the grace that God has extended to me to be able to interpret this dream. When God establishes something, it's for his glory and it's without equivocation. We look in verse 9, and it says that, God brought Daniel into favor with tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. He established him first there. And then in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, he established him to be fairer and fatter in flesh. Verse 17, these four, God gave them knowledge and skill. He caused them to stand out. He was imparting these gifts to them. This is the grace that God is extending to them. Ultimately, what did he do? He made them useful to Nebuchadnezzar. This is part of what he commanded them, right? We looked at this the very first week. He commanded them, you go and pray for the peace of the city in which you are. You seek its best. You live your life there. Turn to me to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. I'm going to begin in verse 6. <clears throat> it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, 
for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth the, and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth before you go into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So we have this description here, and, and I realize that it's a slightly different context, but by way of application for us, we have this description. The Lord says, seek me while you can find me. There's, and to do so, he says, let the wicked forsake his way. And there's some description of that. And there's this discussion, this proclamation, if you will, about God's superiority for lack of a better word, over man, over his creation. My thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And he continues with that train of thought, be, those things that I have uttered, just as the rain and the snow has its purpose and its function and its decreed what it needs to do, my word will go out and accomplish that which I have sent it to do. When God establishes something, it's without equivocation, it's for his glory. As we conclude here at the end of this passage, this is an everlasting sign. It shall be for the name of the Lord, for his glory. And for you and I, those who are receiving the grace, as it were, the the infusion of the word of God into ourselves, it brings about in us that which it is designed to do. The knowledge and the skill and the wisdom and the application of those things. So that we, like Stephen, as we stand before those who would persecute, who would rail against God, who would disparage the name of Christ, we have an answer. And it's irrefutable, not because of our understanding and our wisdom, but because of what God has yielded in you and I as a result of his word going out. Turns me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 31 through 36. It says, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they may also obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
or who has first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. There's nobody giving God instruction. There's nobody saying, hey, listen, Lord, this is really what you ought to do. His understanding surpasses ours. His ways are above our ways. They're unsearchable on our behalf. But it is created for him and through him and to him that he might receive all the glory. When God established Daniel, it was clear. There was no equal found all throughout Babylon ten times greater. And it wasn't like, well, maybe they're just a little bit better, or maybe this, no, unequivocally, no wiggle room, they were ten times better. When Stephen stood before those scholars there making defense, they couldn't refute it. There was nothing they could do to answer it. So what did they do? They put him to death. Really the first martyr after the establishment of the New Testament church. And he was put to death simply because he expressed the wisdom of God and it was irrefutable to the world around him. In Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verses 21 through 23. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And we have this, Jesus says of himself, I am the stone which the builders rejected. There is this gospel clarity here. And what does it mean? The stone which the builders refused. This is in reference to the practice that they had. They would lay a cornerstone. This would be the chief thing. You lay it out there. It's a substantial stone, and it's part of the foundation. And it gets set, and it establishes the elevation for the first course. Everything builds up from there. And so it was selected very, very carefully. And here are the builders, right? That's a reference to the nation of Israel in many respects. Here, are they, here they are, the religious elite, the leaders, those who should have been watching, looking forward to this promised Messiah, the one who is going to forgive sin. And they look at it and they say, oh, no, we're going to reject that one. That's not meeting the expectation, the qualifications that we think it should have. And what did God do? He said, no, this is the stone. You rejected it. You, you've made a decision. You've made a choice about it. But the stone that needed to be placed is the one that you rejected. And so God established Jesus Christ. Didn't he? he sent his own son in the flesh to be that which would be rejected, Isaiah 53. And it stood in our place. And there it was. And it says that it was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our sight. We look at it and we marvel and we see the hand of God. And here we are studying the hand of God throughout this redemptive purpose from Genesis to Revelation. And we marvel at it. We marvel at the sovereignty of God. We marvel at how he providentially brought things to pass so that his will and purpose would be accomplished. And even as we study through Daniel, we see those same themes. 
and we marvel at. Because when God establishes something, whether it's Jesus as the only means of salvation, or Daniel, his guy there in Babylon, it's clearly established. And when we share the gospel with people, it's marvelous in their sight. It makes no sense to them. And we, we often encounter John chapter 3, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and people don't like the gospel. They don't like that this is the only standard. This is the foundation upon which to build. Why? Because it reveals my desperate need and my sinfulness. We're talking about God being in control, sovereign brevity. That's what we need this morning is some more brevity. <laughs> Keep it short. Keep it short. Sovereign brevity. Last verse. And Daniel continued even under the first year of King Cyrus. And I realize it doesn't seem that significant, but the Babylonian Empire, one of the greatest empires to have ever existed, lasts only slightly longer than the life of one godly man just slightly longer than Daniel's lifespan. Life it started just a little bit ahead of him coming into Babylon. One lifespan. Not so with God's kingdom. Those things that God establishes, they are established. They're unchanging. They're unwavering. We can take it to the we can count on it. We can look forward into the future. And just as we sort of did a little bit this morning, looking forward into the future, those things that Jesus is yet to do, we know with certainty that it's going to happen because God has established it. Sovereign brevity. Turn with me to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. In verse 16, it says, When the wicked are multiplied, transgression increase, but the righteous shall see their fall. Even though God was using the nation of Babylon, this empire that he allowed to establish, he's already promised its destruction. And as we get into the next chapter, we find that that promise of destruction is now is then revealed to Daniel through this dream. But in the midst of all that, we have this promise of looking forward. Turns me to Matthew chapter six. As we turn to Matthew chapter six, I have here Isaiah forty four twenty eight and Isaiah forty five one through four, and it's in those passages, those two passages, that Cyrus. By name, the last, uh, empire, the last emperor there in the Babylonian Empire, as after it's fallen, announced the, the Persians and then the Medes, as it begins to disintegrate 600 years before Cyrus was born, we have this utterance that this by name is going to be the guy who rebuilds the temple. And then we get into the book of Ezra. And what happens? Cyrus signs a proclamation. Not only are we going to rebuild the temple, but we're going to give you back all the things that we stole when Nebuchadnezzar took the temple, when he destroyed Jerusalem, and we're going to fund it ourselves. God brought it to pass at the proper time. In Matthew chapter 6, 
verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on it. It is not the life more than meat in the body than raiment. And as I read this and I look at the perspective, the purpose of Daniel to not defile himself, I think to myself, this is what Daniel did. This is what he had in mind. He wasn't looking for those things here. He was looking for something greater. He says, behold, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add a one cubit to his stature? And why take you thought for raiment or clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, this is the conclusion. Now, it isn't necessarily saying, hey, just check out and go live monastically over here in the wilderness and God will provide all, every, that isn't exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is, where is your trust? Where is your dependence line? I mean, we have the command that God says, listen, hey, you, you husbands, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. And we have the balancing truth of that, that even God himself gives us the strength that we might go do what we need to do to make that provision. We're completely trusting in him in either circumstance. But what he's saying here is, where is your dependency? Are you looking for all these things to find security in them? Or are you trusting in me? And this was Daniel. He says, Look, I, I'm not trusting in the king of Babylon for my provision. I'm trusting in God and in his provision. Wherefore, the response of the truth. If God so clothes the field the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, O ye of little faith? Do we trust that God is for us and has us everything we need prepared or not? Where does my dependency lie? Am I trusting in his sovereignty or am I trusting in those things that I can see? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. They don't have the assurance of God. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. He's not going to see us go without he is going to provide, whether it's the strength to work the job, whether it's miraculously, whether it's through thrifty living, whatever the means of grace that he extends to us, he is providing it. But like Daniel, we need to seek first the kingdom of God. That is our priority. The glory of God and the establishment of his kingdom and his righteousness, it says. In other words, am I standing in faith? Am I that person that says, listen, this is the righteousness of God. This is what he has said to do, and this is what he has said not to do. I am going to walk in obedience. I'm going to make the conscious effort and act to seek first his kingdom. And to establish, to, to mimic, to 
mirror the righteousness of God to the world around me. All of these things shall be added unto you, he says. Take therefore nor thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought of the things itself. Sufficient is the day to unto the day is the evil thereof. This is what Daniel did. This is where he purposed. This is what he established himself to do, was to walk faithfully with his God. And in the end, he understood that God was in fact sovereign. That whether he was delivered from the hardship or the hardship was removed from him or whether or, or God left him in the middle of it, it was for God's glory and for the furtherance of his will. It was for the establishment of his kingdom. And Daniel said, I will seek his righteousness first. Who was ultimately in control in all this? God was. Not Daniel. Not Nebuchadnezzar. God was. We seek him first. We trust him. We stand in faith in, of him, not of what we can see, taste, touch, feel, and experience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We praise you for the example that you've laid out in your word. I thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to deliver the righteous. And God, may we, by your grace, be those who are recognizing those things that you have established, those deliverances, the grace that you've extended to us. And God, would you help us as Daniel to purpose to stand in faith? knowing that you will correct as necessary, knowing that you will reward, Lord, as appropriate. And Lord, let the motivation and the desire of our heart be to glorify you, to make you known to the world around us, to reveal the redemptive purpose that you've had throughout all of your creation. We thank you, Lord, that as you establish us, that we can trust that you have established us completely and without equivocation or without any uh, wavering. And God, may that truth, may that, may that give us boldness that as we proclaim your word, as we live righteously, as we stand in faith, Lord, that we know that you are in control and that you are establishing those things, that your ways are not the ways of the world, nor our ways. And the Lord, you are made known and glorified in those stands of faith. We praise you now and we thank you. And Father, as we have time to worship and to sing praise and adoration to who you are and what you've done, God, would you be honored in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.